as I've been preparing this message on my, my topic this morning is Everlasting Father out of Isaiah chapter 9, I've been recognizing that people need loyal, faithful, good, wise leaders in place for them when the times are dark and when they seem to even, we can feel it, be growing even more so. And I think uh, the darkness of winter here in North Idaho is actually a pretty good metaphor uh, for the, this, this situation, this culture that we find ourselves in. In the summertime, you know this, in North Idaho, like June, July, August, we just spill outside. We are outside as long as we possibly can be. The sun just kind of spilling its light and warmth out on us, sometimes until like 10 p.m., but then what happens is in the fall that the, the sunlight starts to fade a bit and then there's this weird thing that happened a couple of weeks ago, the time change, right? We all kind of groan at it or many of us groan at this time change and combined with the winter solstice, which is just in 10 days or so, like it gets dark really, really quick and we feel it and it becomes a topic of our, of our conversation, doesn't it? Like today, I don't know if you realize this, but the sun will set before 4 p.m. It will be down at around 3.50. You're like, man, this is a great way to start a sermon. Super bright, feeling really encouraged this morning. But here is where I'm going with it. The darkness has a way of pointing us to something, doesn't it? The darkness that we feel just physically, just in, in environmentally in the world that we live in, in northern Idaho, it points us, it creates a longing in us, doesn't it? It creates a longing in us for the warmth and for the light of summer. Do you agree? That's already what some of us are feeling in December. Um, Fleming Rutledge is a, uh, she is a scholar on Advent. And what Fleming Rutledge says is Advent, the season of Advent, it always begins in the dark. This is a season of hope. We've got lighted trees and lights out and joy and singing, but Advent, this coming Christ child, it began in a dark, in the dark. It was prophesied in the dark. And so Fleming Rutledge says, Advent always begins in the dark, but, she writes, there is a but. There is a but to it. Advent is this entire season that calls us as humanity to kind of look back and to remember that God is and that he has been present, but also to look forward and to count on his promises, to rehearse his promises to us. And so it's almost like we look back in history with one eye and we look forward with the other eye into the future. A pastor in Colorado named Glenn Packiam, he puts it like this. He says, the church of Jesus actually stands between two proclamations. The very first proclamation that we stand between is that God has come. And the second proclamation that we stand between is that Lord Jesus come or come Lord Jesus. This first proclamation that God has come to us, it grounds our confidence in this second promise. Come Lord Jesus. The life, the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus points us forward to remember and to rehearse that renewal will come through him. So this season with Advent, it's all about remembering and it's all about rehearsing. 
That's what we're doing in an entire month, every calendar year. We're thinking about Advent and we're remembering what has been and we're, we're rehearsing what is to come. Whatever we repeat, it has, this, it has a formational effect on us. If you want to get good at anything, you have to repeat it a lot, right? If it's something like weightlifting, you have to drill movements over and over and over again to get weight over your head and to do so with the technique that, where you're not going to injure yourself. If you're, if you're sewing or doing some kind of a craft that, that requires skill, you've got machine and you've got material and you have to develop skill so that you can become more and more efficient at it. If you play music, you've got to play, you've got to practice in order to truly play. And so with Advent, we're remembering by going back into history, back to Isaiah, and we're rehearsing by looking ahead at what Isaiah said would happen and how Jesus, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the fulfillment of that. I know that Zach has done a little bit of, of recap. He's done some introduction to Isaiah, um, but I want to use some of my own language to just set up where we're going with Everlasting Father this morning. At the time when Isaiah, he's this Old Testament prophet, at the time when he's writing, it's about 700 years before Jesus would arrive on the scene in flesh as a human. And this coming child king that Isaiah begins talking about and that Greg just read for us in Isaiah chapter 9, he sounds unbelievable, probably impossible for the people of that time to imagine coming. Why? Because the time that they were living in was really dark and it was harsh. They were, as a culture and as a people, they were on the brink of invasion. They were on the brink of destruction as a nation. This kingdom of Israel was split in two. So you have this kingdom of Judah and this kingdom of Israel and they're fighting with each other and they're both in conflict with nations who are on their borders as well. And so with Judah, there's this uh, superpower that's amassing on their borders, a nation named Syria. And rather than looking to Yahweh, the God of Israel, for their deliverance, they continued to do what they had continued to do for over 200 years. They're looking to themselves, they're looking elsewhere, they're looking to other nations to, to save them. And so at this time, their king, a man named Ahaz, he was negotiating with, with Assyria's king, kind of working out a sort of plea deal. But just prior in Isaiah, in the early chapters of Isaiah, the Lord is speaking through Isaiah to the nation of Judah saying, don't go to them. Look to me and I will deliver you. And yet Ahaz, their leader, their king, was going elsewhere. And it's into this context that the book of Isaiah begins. And he begins to write and he begins to open up. And so if, if you turn and you look at Isaiah chapter 1, um, I, th I think Isaiah is on, what, chapter, what page is Isaiah on in your pew Bible? 607, I think. If you, if you just want to go there and kind of follow along, I'm going to go really quick through the first few chapters of Isaiah. But Isaiah 1 opens up with this prophet speaking from the Lord. And he's showing that the Lord is he's going to bring judgment on Judah, they, uh, he's rebuking them. You can hear these tones of lament in the Lord and in his like, personhood as he's speaking to Judah. He's saying, man, you guys are loaded down with the sin of your own iniquity, like the beasts of the field and your domestic animals around the house. They know their maker, but you, humanity created in my image, you don't even know who I am. 
And then in chapter two, we start to see this like flash of light, kind of like lightning on a dark night. There's this like glimmer of hope. One starts, chapter one starts out really heavy. And then chapter two, this, this language of judgment continues to come, but there's this flash of light where God says that there's going to actually come a time when you're not going to know war anymore. You're not going to have to learn the art of conflict and the art of physical battle, war, because I'm going to do away with it. I'm actually going to make peace with it. If you move forward into chapter four, there's a heading there that will probably say something like the righteous branch will come. It's, it's metaphoric language for this coming king who will come and deliver the people of Judah and of Israel. Isaiah continues this kind of um, push and pull flow of judgment language, but also these flashes of light and these glimmers of hope throughout. And in chapter five, what Isaiah does is he offers these woes to the people of Judah. He's just like, woe are you, woe are you, woe are you. He's rebuking them and he's calling them to repentance. And then chapter six turns to this story of his own conversion his own experience and encounter with the Lord. He, uh, is, he's, he has a vision. He's, kind of, he's coming face to face in some ways with Yahweh, this king of Judah and of Israel. And what, what is radical here in this encounter in Isaiah chapter six is that Isaiah is chosen by God to represent God to the people of the disobedient people of Israel, of Judah, but he is himself called by God. So Isaiah is God's man. He's in. He is chosen. He's good, right? He's the man of God. But he has this encounter in the temple where the woes are not any longer going out to the people. The woe that he's pronouncing is actually upon himself. He encounters the holiness and the presence of God, and he goes, woe am I. I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips were complete hypocrites. The language that he uses is it ruins him. I am ruined. Some of your Bibles or your translations will say destroyed, or some of them will say lost. It's this idea of like, Game over now that I'm encountering the presence of God. He's immediately confronted with his own personal need. He's immediately confronted with his own brokenness in this moment. And it's through this encounter with God's holiness. And so in, in this moment of encounter, there's no, like, there's no self-justification coming out of Isaiah's mouth. There's not even an appeal to God's goodness and his mercy in this moment. There's not an expectation of rescue. It's just unraveling. It's just devastation. And in Isaiah chapter six, what's wild here in that moment where Isaiah is recognizing who he is in light of who God is, God doesn't even use words. It's simply, not simply, but it is the purity and the power of God's presence alone that carries this message of his own holiness and his perfections. And so if you and I are mildly impressed with God, we have not understood him. And I would argue that I am mildly impressed 
and that we are likely mildly impressed. We get in these moments of worship and awe and adoration, but as a people, we're often operating in this space of just, he's another part of our day. He's another part of our existence. He's a bit of a divine butler. We just go to him when we need something. And so much of our life, my life, is marked by a kind of mild view of who he is. And Isaiah, so consider that for yourself. What does that mean for you? What does that mean for your life? As we move on through Isaiah, he continues to just offer these, this language of judgment alongside these, like, these flashes of light and of hope. And he continues to build this theme as he's carrying out his mission to the people of Judah. He's calling them to repentance, which is this language that means changing their mind and then their life about who God is, to come back to their fathering God. There's this famous passage in Isaiah 7, 14, where he says that a virgin will conceive and will bear a child and you'll call his name Emmanuel. And this title of Emmanuel means God is with us. So the people of Israel are not with God. They've walked on, they have abandoned him, the people of Judah as well. And yet he is proclaiming to them in the middle of Isaiah chapter seven that I am with you, I will be with you. And then we come to Isaiah chapter nine, which Brian read for us. And it describes more about this son. This son will come who will grow into a kind of maturity with a particular skill in ruling, in being a king. The child will come and be in this lineage of David, who is this beloved and great king of the nation of Israel. This son is a Messiah, a kind of rescuer. He's more human in some ways than us humans. And he'll be known by even more true and extravagant titles, things like Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. When you think about those titles, Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Who doesn't? Who of us does not want to be loved and known by someone where those attributes are just bound up together in unity and being lived out toward you and I? Like I think if all of us are honest at any given moment, we're all, we all long to, to be close to someone like that. So today, here's my task. My task is to describe everlasting father. That's really it. It's to make father here a bit more clear in this text and to try to bring it as close to our own hearts as I possibly can. So I've already kind of alluded to it, but just a moment of dialogue. This son that Isaiah is proclaiming will come. Do we know who this son is? Do you know? Who is he? Does he have a name? Jesus. Okay, good. We're, we're getting there. You guys are doing great. Zach, we've got some work to do. No, I'm just kidding. Um, Jesus is known as who? He's known as the son of who? So is the son the father? It's not a trick question. No. The son is not the father, and the father is not the son. So hang with me here for just a moment. 
We're Trinitarian. I'm a Trinitarian. I assume that you're a Trinitarian. We believe that God is one, but he exists eternally in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There'll be a graphic up behind me on the screen. This is kind of a, a model. It's real simple, but it, it shows what we tend to, and I, I know that, that Zach would affirm this, we believe that the Father is not the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is not the Son, and the Son is not the Father. But the Father is God, the Son is God, the Holy Spirit is God. And so even in the middle there, where you see God represented by one circle, it's not actually, it's not a Venn diagram that just shows these three overlapping circles with kind of the hot spot of God in the middle as these three personalities come together, but rather they're overlaid on top of one another, meaning the Father is fully God, the Son is fully God, and the Holy Spirit is fully God. It's it's harder to explain than that, but that is a, a summary of what we believe as Trinitarians. We believe God is a trinity. There's an old heresy that's called modalism that shows up, and, and it, it essentially teaches that God um, is one God, but he shows up in modes. So sometimes God shows up as the Father. Sometimes God shows up when he's needed as the Son. Sometimes he shows up as the Holy Spirit. He's kind of a shape shifter. That's not, that, that, this, this text in Isaiah chapter 9 is sometimes used to defend modalism. But that's not what we believe, and I don't believe at all that that's actually what this text is teaching. So we've got some problems here. We've got to kind of figure out and come to an understanding. What does Isaiah mean by calling this son who will be born the everlasting father? I'm going to go right to uh, some scholars on this. A guy named Ray Ortland Jr. is a scholar in Isaiah. And this is what he writes on, uh, in the, the, it's actually in the study notes of the ESV study Bible. He says here is a father is a benevolent, someone who is benevolent has just an abundance of goodwill and good work towards those that they love. A father here is a benevolent protector which is the task of the ideal king and is also the way that God himself cares for his people. Orland goes on to say, this, tithe, this, this is not using the Trinitarian title Father for the Messiah, but rather it is portraying this Messiah as a king, and I would add a fatherly king. The New Bible Commentary says, Father here signifies the paternal, that's a parent, the parent-like benevolence of the perfect ruler over a people who he loves as his children. So everlasting Father here is describing what he will be like. It's all about how Jesus relates as king to his subjects and to his citizens. So here's kind of my big idea this morning, if I can just sum it up in a sentence. Jesus is our everlasting fatherly king who leads, protects, and provides for his people. I'm going to spend a little bit of time on this idea of Jesus being a fatherly king who leads wisely, being a fatherly king who provides abundantly, and also being a fatherly king who protects thoroughly. Um, Israel, Judah, every other group of more than five people in the world needs good leadership and is always on the lookout for good leadership. 
I was, I gathered with a group of lead pastors a few weeks ago. Zach was one of them. And um, we had been kind of organized by another guy in town. And we got together. And the purpose for us getting together was just to gather for about an hour to eat and to pray for one another. But the guy who organized this group actually didn't show up and didn't tell us that he wasn't going to be there. And so you get these seven guys, Zach and I, and then one other who was there at a previous meeting, but this is the second time we'd ever met. And then three other new people, we come into the room and we're kind of like, hey, where's so-and-so? Nobody knew. Then we found out and we're like, there was a, what we experienced was a leadership vacuum. We're all used to leading our own congregations and our own organizations. But in that moment, we were looking for leadership and it was obvious that it wasn't there in the room in the moment when we needed it. Um, national leaders, too, are often looked to in times of crisis to kind of provide like a fatherly role or a motherly role when tragedy strikes. Uh, we know this as a nation, like when things happen, uh, when things go astray, when they're out of our control, we groan for an assurance of the future. I remember um, President George W. Bush around the time of 9-11. I remember, whatever you think about his politics is um, none of my business, and I'm not promoting his politics in any way, shape, or form. But what I do remember about um, George W. Bush is his poise was incredible around 9-11. Like, we as a nation, we needed the steadiness of his presence. We needed his stability in those days. And I think he served his country very well. Isaiah is, uh, what he's doing is communicating a promise from God that a leader will arrive on the scene who's got all the qualities that Judah needs. They're going to enter these people. They're going to enter as they follow this king, this child who is coming. They're going to enter into the fruit of a victory that they actually didn't win. They didn't even raise a finger to accomplish. This king, this child who will rule, the government will be upon his shoulder. He'll be Davidic or David-like. He'll be a, a wise, wonderful counselor. He'll be mighty. He'll bring a kind of mind-blowing, flourishing and peace to the people who he rules over. He's going to be a father to the people that he rules over. Not just to one generation, but to generation after generation after generation who looks to his fatherly rule because his fathering leadership will be established as eternal. I'm gonna fast forward into the New Testament. There's this moment. So as we know, if, if, we, if we understand that Jesus is this son who was promised and he arrived on the scene and he lived around 30 years and then he, he lived in our place a perfect life and died for us, was buried in a tomb, rose again three days after being buried, never to die again. The writer of the Hebrews actually says that death has no dominion over Jesus. And what Isaiah is telling us about this coming child is that he will have total and complete dominion, even over death. Death will be included in that dominion and in his rule. Now, back to Isaiah in the context of the day. These people, they're, they're, they've got Assyria on their borders. They will end up being, uh, having to endure judgment in order to be cleansed. But God's promise still stands for them. 
This child will lead, will establish his dominion. And kings are held responsible, are they not, for the well-being and for the good of their people? One of the reasons this Assyrian empire was about to invade and was about to completely plunder Judah was due to the wickedness, due to the greed, due to the ego and arrogance of her kings. Judah's kings did not warn and protect Judah. Instead, the, the majority of them served their own interests continually. But this coming son, this king, he's going to be different. Like a good father type, he'll be willing to sacrifice his own life in order to save and in order to shield those who he loves. Fatherly kings lead wisely. Fatherly kings also protect thoroughly. This king, this coming child king, will protect by following through on his promises. Isaiah writes that he'll see to it that combat will no longer be a thing. Like combat boots are only going to be for fashion. They're not going to be at all for function at any point in this time. Fighter jets, tanks, as cool, as powerful as they are, they're not going to be for killing. They're just going to be for entertainment, I hope. If you've been around them, if you've felt the thunder and if you've felt the strength of some of this equipment, it's, it's pretty incredible and it, it makes our adrenaline surge. And they may exist, but they're not going to exist for killing. They're not going to exist for wounding. Conflict will not be a thing any longer in this new established, fully established kingdom. He will establish peace. But remember, we're standing in an in-between time. We're standing in between two proclamations. God has come in the flesh, Jesus, and we're still waiting for this second coming, this second advent, come Lord Jesus. The first, the fact that he has come, lived, died, was buried and raised for our justification, ascended and now rules and reigns, it grounds our confidence that he will show up and he will bring a total kind of renewal to you and I and to all of creation. Fatherly kings protect thoroughly. There's something truly horrible about not being protected. Um, so many of our wounds, they, they have a root in us not being protected. I don't need to go into all of the details there. You can make the connections in the life that you have experienced. But what's one thing that's pretty wild to me about Isaiah here and about this entire book, it's written by this prophet, Isaiah, who is called and sent by Yahweh himself to go to the people of Judah for the purpose of calling her kings and calling the people and citizens to return to the Lord. Yet they would not they would not relent. And that is why the Assyrians would invade and win. I'm thinking about, uh, as I'm preparing this, I'm thinking about Matthew and Matthew's gospel. You guys spent like, how old are you as a church? Like four years, three or four years? You guys spent like 17 years together in Matthew's gospel. And there's this moment where Jesus is looking out over the city of Jerusalem and he's mourning her hardness of heart. He's come to his own and his own did not know him, but they rejected him. And he's weeping. He's uh, like, there's emotion welling up within him and spilling out of him. And he's going, I yearn that you would come to me and just come under the wing of my protection, but you would not. 
The story is the same for him in the days of Israel as it was for Isaiah. And it's into that context that Isaiah is writing. And at the point when Isaiah is writing, he's been, uh, God has been calling the people of Judah for 200 years. He's patient, but Judah wouldn't relent. All along, God has this deep desire to thoroughly protect his people. As you fast forward all the way through Isaiah to the second to last chapter, chapter 65, it begins like this. It says, God is speaking through Isaiah here, and he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. Think about that. I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who didn't seek me. I said, God speaking, here I am, here I am to a nation that was not called by my name, a nation that had abandoned him. I spread out my hands all the day to a rebellious people who walk in a way that is not good, following their own devices, a people who provoke me to my face continually. And it's into this context that Isaiah is writing. But the next chapter where Isaiah lands, where Isaiah ends is chapter 66. And it ends like this. For as the new heavens and the new earth that I make shall remain before me. So he's promising renewal. New heavens, new earth. I will make these as they will remain before me, says the Lord. So shall your offspring and your name remain. From new moon to new moon and from Sabbath to Sabbath, all flesh shall come and worship before me, declares the Lord. What's he saying in Isaiah chapter 66? Even though Judah rebels, he will come through on his promises. They have abandoned their covenant. He will not. He will keep coming and keep coming and keep coming as Emmanuel, the God who is with his people, present to his people. Fatherly kings lead wisely. Fatherly kings protect thoroughly. And fatherly kings provide abundantly. Fatherly kings provide places for people to dwell in safety. They provide infrastructure that leads to wellness, that leads to commerce. Fatherly kings encourage education and trades. Look at these two lines in Isaiah chapter 9 that talk about government. I think in the CSB, that's the Bible that you guys use, it says dominion, but um, the, the word government and dominion can be used interchangeably here. The dominion shall be, shall rest upon this king's shoulders. Of the increase of his dominion and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over David's kingdom, which God promised that he would always, that there would always be someone from him to sit on his throne and to rule over his people, this king would establish, that's a building word, and uphold and sustain it. That's a preserving word. So what this Messiah is going to do, what this child king is going to do, is he's going to shift the weight of burden from our shoulders onto his a guy named J. Alec Amatier, he says, his people's shoulders are delivered when his shoulders accept the burden of rule and rulership. This is so much of why Advent, though it begins in the dark, is such a, a time of hope and joy for us because we look forward to the future. Isaiah chapter 9, 8 
This verse says the zeal or the passion of the Lord of armies or the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So his promise does not depend upon our performance. His promise depends upon his faithfulness to come through again and again and again and again, though we, like sheep, have gone astray. Every single one of us. He continues to come to his people. He, this king, is a fatherly king who is benevolent and cares for his subjects, and he rules with authority. And we haven't even talked about eternity yet. We haven't talked about this idea of everlasting. I thought about throwing it on the front end, but it'd take forever, right? Literally, it's like, it's a concept that is hard to get our minds around, but God's word also says in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in men and women's hearts. So we all, at a probably fundamental level, we have an understanding of what, uh, what everlasting or what eternity details. So I just want to, I want to leave you with this thought. I have this little prop with me on stage right here. This is, you can see, it's a rope with a little black mark in the middle. I'm stealing this from a guy named Francis Chan, and I'm, I'm altering it a little bit. But this black piece of the rope in the middle represents your life represents our life. It's short in the scheme of things. But what it means that God is eternal is that he's not just eternal from our point of origin. Eternity doesn't just last out here. It's not really an eternal rope. It just goes behind the banner, right? You get that. But he also has been fathering us from eternity past. So before you and I were ever like a bump in mommy's tummy, our fathering king has been looking out for our interests. He has been seeing and governing the nations since before you and I ever came to be. He's fathering us now in our short existence. There's not much there in the scheme of things. And he will be fathering you and I forever and ever and ever One thing that's just dawned on me as I've been preparing this is there are no goodbyes with the Lord Jesus. Have you ever thought about that? There are no goodbyes with him. None at all. There is no abandonment. He said, I will never abandon you or forsake you. There's not even absence. Though he feels far away, he's the God who is present and who is here. Like your tagline says, he is not hidden There's no shortcomings with Jesus. There's no workaholism with Jesus. There are no father wounds with our king. Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, the Christ, is the everlasting fatherly king of Isaiah chapter nine, verse six. And so here's our point of some application here. The the very best thing that you and I can do in this moment and in every moment after is to affirm our trust in him, whether for the first time or whether for the 700th time or whether for the 7,000th time. The best possible thing that you and I can do is to affirm our trust in him. Yes, things seem to be spinning out of control and circumstances are beyond us, and yet your fathering king has been fathering you from before the point in time when you knew he actually was. He's at work ordaining things, decreeing things, sustaining things, and this moment of faith comes for you and I where, aha, like we recognize that he is Lord, he is God, and his promise 
continues on, that he is going to continue to father us. So this Advent, like our work is not to be wringing our hands over what comes our way. Your God is calling your name. He's speaking to you through your spirit, by his spirit, asking you to trust him, to look to him, to follow him, of the increase of our fatherly King Jesus' dominion and of peace there will be no end. And he is the perfect imprint of our Father who rules and reigns with him over all things. Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, he leads, he provides, he protects us. And he does so through his perfect life, lived for us, you and I know, like imperfections all over the place. And yet Jesus lived perfectly, fulfilled the law of God, no sin whatsoever in him. He went to his death at the hands of lawless men, dying as a criminal unjustly for the unjust. He was in the grave, cold, dank, dark, dead for three days. And on that third day, the Spirit of God raised Jesus to new life to prove that he is who he says he is, that he was who he says he was. For those who believe into him, for those who place our trust, roll our cares in his direction, Jesus Christ has forgiven all of our trespasses. And that doesn't just mean past. That doesn't just mean for you and I what was back there. It also means the stuff that we're enmeshed in today whether it's egregious or whether it's like moods and attitudes and irritations that splash up and harm the people around us, he has forgiven us of all of our past sin. He is forgiving us of all of our present sin and he will continue to forgive us of all of our future sin. He is that good to us. They're laid on him who died as our substitute. Like I said, the innocent in place of the guilty. And so through his action, at the cross on our behalf. What Jesus has done is disarmed, mocked openly the spiritual forces of darkness, putting them to open condemnation through the work of his cross. And this Jesus who was born and who bled and who died and was raised for you and I assures us he will come through on his promises and that he will return again. And so for now, as the church, for those of us who are a part of his church, who believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, we stand in between these two proclamations, that God has come, that he is this foretold child in Isaiah 9, but also we're yearning, come, Lord Jesus, come. Would you put some things right? We can all feel it, please. So... Last, here's where I'll end. Whether we're aware of it or not, I would argue that some, that some, probably all of us are aware at some level, we all desire to be fathered by a good, strong, holy type. Someone who's capable of leading, somebody who's capable of doing so in truth and with justice and righteousness. Somebody who will provide for our needs and offer counsel when we need it and lead us and protect us. And ultimately, we need to be fathered by a king who is eternal. Why? Because so much around us is temporal. It's fragile. So let the darkness get darker. Bring it on. 
Jesus Christ is Lord. He's ruling and reigning in us. And our King, Jesus, will not fail us. He will not fail. Ever. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.